Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I am Andrew Gutman. I am joined, as I am always, with my co-host, Beth Feely. And we are two accidental activist parents that spoke up about what was happening and what we were seeing in our kids' schools. And now we speak to people who are similarly concerned with the state of our education system. And we have uh, today joining us a teacher, Daniel Buck. He is rejoining us. He was a guest of Take Back Our Schools uh, about a year ago. So we welcome him back. Uh, Daniel is a teacher, an eighth grade English teacher, I think, in Wisconsin. He is also a senior visiting fellow at the Fordham Institute and the author of a brand new book appropriately titled, What is Wrong with Our Schools?, which is something we are going to talk about today. So, Daniel, thanks so much for coming back to Take Back Our Schools. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure last time, and I look forward to it this time. Terrific. So I'd like to start, I think, with the motivation for you writing this book. Um, Was it more what you were seeing in your classroom or was it more sort of the big picture of what's wrong with our education system broadly, or maybe a combination of both? Talk a little bit about what, what, what made you write this book. Uh, I actually wrote this book because the publisher asked me to, Uh, it it wasn't an, it wasn't an idea that I had, but the publisher reached out and said, Hey, do you want to write a book? And I replied, I've never thought of that before. Uh, I actually started writing is probably the more is what you're looking for. Uh, because I was just frustrated uh, and I kind of felt like I needed an outlet. It started in uh, my university teacher prep program, which was full of just crazy progressive politics, um, outlandish ideas about, you know, uh, a topic I've been hitting on a lot recently is just the idea that the teacher shouldn't be the authority in the classroom, which, you know, you need an adult running children and there's nothing wrong or oppressive with some loving adult authority, setting boundaries for kids, giving them a timeout, Um, and you know, the idea that that, that relationship between adults to child is oppressive, she's crazy ideas. Um, but I just, I started writing because I needed an outlet to contest some of these ideas and then kind of, uh, worked my way into bigger publications. I had more and more teachers reaching out to me and saying, you know, I disagree with your politics, but what you're saying about education is spot on and I'm not on board with it. You know, I like my union. I'm on the left, but a lot of this crazy far left stuff is just, that's not what I'm about. In your, when, when did you go to grad school for education? What year are we talking? Uh, 2015, 2016. Okay. And then also how were your, your classmates? Like, were you want like a lone voice in the wilderness or did you have even classmates then that were kind of, um, you know, on your side with this? Or, or were they imbibing it unquestioningly? unquestioningly? There is one other guy uh, that was kind of, on the right that, or, you know, didn't agree with a lot of what we were learning. Uh, but he was more of the government is seeding the clouds and conspiracy theory kind of thing. So we didn't really, <laughs> even he and I, not super helpful. <laughs> no, but there were a number of times I, I picked my battles, but anytime I rose my hand, it was the whole class against me. Um, I had professors yell at me a few different times, um, hour long office hours where we were just some of the professors, if I sat down with them one-on-one, were very cordial and willing to talk it out. It was actually the students that were the most um, vicious in any time. I was like, I don't think I agree with that. Um, even just simple things like saying, I think this author contradicts himself would get me so much pushback because you couldn't even question the internal consistency of the authors, let alone if they're right or wrong. It just, this is this is truth. This is what it is. And you're not allowed to question it. Did you know how, or did you have a sense for how politicized education schools were before you got there? Or was that just, you know, a surprise when you got there? It was a surprise when I got there. I thought I was going to get a, I thought I was going to learn how to teach. 
thought I was going to learn classroom okay. management, how to think up and put good examples and analogies, how to give an entertaining lecture, how to create, you know, good structured practice, all of this kind of stuff that you would think you'd learn at a teacher training school. And I showed up and it was critical race theory. It was how to read books through a Marxist lens. It was, it was wild. Did you think of quitting or did you, I mean, or did you say I need to be in this to, to counter or I just want to be a teacher and I have to go through this, get my degree. Cause that's what I have to do. That was mostly it. I think I was okay. 21, 22. I wasn't thinking that abstractly yet. It was just, I need to get through this so I can get my degree and go teach. And you've been only in private schools or have you also been in public schools since you started teaching? I've done public and private. I did okay. four, four years in public. And then this is my third year in a private school. I made the switch during the pandemic because I saw online learning was going to be a disaster and wanted to be out of school that was open. Interesting. I like, like many parents with their children and switching them to private because they did do a much better job. Um, in your book, you are a fan of the traditional approach versus the progressive approach. Could you talk a little bit about the differences and then also how they play out in the classroom? Um, and we'd love, you know, anecdotes from your classroom. Yeah. Um, a so I'm a literature teacher specifically. A progressive approach to the literature classroom would be, uh, you know, you'd have literacy blocks where kids pick their own books and then they spend 45 minutes reading on their own. Uh, often, almost always, it's young adult fiction. It's never the classics. They spend most of the class time reading on their own. They design their own final writing projects. Uh, often, because it's contemporary young adult fiction, it's very political projects too. So they pick an issue that they want to research and write about. Uh, there's very little teacher instruction. There's very little whole class discussion. It's kind of all entirely isolated and independent. And <clears throat> I'm not entirely against choice units. Uh, my old private school, I had a little more choice, like control over what I did in the classroom. And I would want, run a choice unit or two during the year, um, you know, three week thing where kids pick their books and we spend time reading, but that wasn't the majority of what we did. A more traditionalist approach to the classroom, especially when you get into middle school and high school is what I think you and I think about in an English classroom where uh, there are great books that we think everyone should be familiar with, ranging from Shakespeare to Orwell to Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass. There are essays that we think any educated person should know and have read. And we read those and the teacher is there to help the student understand them and to discuss them all together as a class, to link them back to things we've read before, to link them even to the present, you know, I'm not saying we completely forget about the present in teaching, but the more broadly progressive education really began in the early 1900s with John Dewey at the Columbia Teachers College. And it was just a rejection of everything that came before, all of the classical education that came before, the idea that there is some content that any educated person should know, that the teacher has a guiding role in the classroom, both in what students learn and how they behave. And progressive education got rid of all that and said, we're just going to let kids flourish. Just let them be. Mm -hmm. um, society and adult imposition is only going to ruin and corrupt them. And we just need to let them go play and do whatever they want, uh, which is not effective. Right. It, also, it, it, from it's it sounds nice in the abstract, but it never works. Concrete. Are kids getting any, maybe in your classroom, but are kids getting any classical literature? I mean, like what Beth and I are a little bit older, you know, we, we went, I think we both went to public schools, Beth, right? You went to public school. Yes, I did. 
um, we, we, you know, we we still read classical literature. I don't think, you know, I don't think I got a terrific classical education, but it was in a decent public school. Still read classical, you know, literature, Shakespeare, etc. Are kids getting any of that today, or has it moved so much in the last generation that they're getting nothing? In uh, I think schools are still a hodgepodge of more classical and then progressive education. At the public school I was at. There were vestiges, you know, they would read Romeo and Juliet, but they cut a bunch of scenes and they actually wouldn't read it start to finish. Mm -hmm. Or they read To Kill a Mockingbird, but they uh, read a few chapters, filled in with the movie for a few chapters and then finished, you know, reading. Uh, But they were moving more and more in the direction towards all complete contemporary fiction and student choice and they were moving away from punitive discipline. So schools are, that's the trajectory of schools right now. And also the university of education, the, the teacher prep programs are wholly bought into this. So it's kind of, it, it's the progressive education hasn't completely taken over, mm-hmm. but I would say it is the loudest voice and it's the direction that they're going right now. And do you see this getting worse just because the younger teachers are being steeped in this more progressive, if not kind of radical ideology um, is it the older teachers that are more experienced uh, that are keeping some of these classics in? And is it is it inevitable that that these will be jettisoned without some intervention? I go back and forth between uh, complete hopelessness and glimmer, glimmers of hope. Uh, one thing I keep bringing up behavior just because it's been on my mind recently. I've been writing a lot about it recently. I think that's one thing that's going to get teachers to question a lot of this progressive uh, orthodoxy because being in a chaotic classroom is just the worst. When you get no support from your administration, it's just the worst. When a kid comes up to you and tells you to F off, go F yourself, and then runs around the room laughing and screaming and administration does nothing. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if anything, the administration says, well, what, what did you do to cause this? That it pisses a lot of teachers off. And for the first time um, in Anchorage, Ohio, uh, last week, I think it was, they almost went on strike over student behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think and this that's- is a restorative, restorative justice. justice. Is that what this is? Mm-hmm. Broadly? Yeah, yeah. Restorative justice, mm-hmm. getting rid of discipline in schools. I think that's going to be the thing that gets a lot of teachers to go, wait, 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 hold on. They're going to question this. And then I'm hoping that mm-hmm. leads more to, leads them to, looking to more about these, well, what else is this affecting? What else isn't working well? You know, maybe they'll pick up my book and read it because I talk about discipline, but also curriculum and instruction and everything else. So this is the teacher equivalent of getting mugged by reality. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I know in teachers that I know that that is happening in their classrooms. Um, They are being asked to take on different roles Um, They are being asked to be kind of an expert, kind of an individual teacher to way too many students. And then completely the the administration doesn't have their back discipline wise. And it's very alienating, although it does, you know, it creates a lot of friction, but there are other forces that can come in and kind of take over and have the teachers backs. And so you hope that those forces, i.e. unions in a public environment are, you know, if we're going to use this as the way to get back to traditional teaching, you need you know, we need people say having their backs that believe in traditional teaching. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it, it's going to be a long road. So, okay. In a classroom, um, 
you know, there, you have a lot of great uh, resources that you reference, by the way, in your book, including Edie Hirsch, which is one of my favorites. I'm holding up cultural literacy to our, uh, <laughs> to the screen right now, although our listeners can't see it. Um, what, what drew you to those authors like him and C.S. Lewis? And was it back when you were an education student or did that come later? C.S. Lewis is, I'm a devout Christian. So I've been reading C.S. Lewis for forever. Um, Edie Hirsch was, that's really what I, I, in the classroom, I actually bought into a lot of progressive education ideas for a little while um, in the the first year or two of my teaching. Um, And I wanted to write an article on what is critical thinking. So I bought a bunch of books and read four or five books trying to figure out what is critical thinking specifically, because everyone always says, well, we want to produce critical thinkers. And I was out to dinner with friends once and we were eating some food, drinking, having a few drinks. And somebody was talking about, oh, hospitals are looking to hire nurses that have critical thinking skills. You know, they care less about this traditional training and they want nurses that can adapt to different situations and think critically about things. And I finally asked, I was like, well, what does that, what does that mean? Like, if you're looking for a nurse, what does it mean to have, for a nurse to have critical thinking skills? And my friend sat back and thought, like, oh, I don't actually know. And couldn't pin anything down. So I tried to pin it down. And I, one of the books was Cultural Literacy by E.D. Hirsch. And another one was How We Think by John Dewey. And John Dewey tried to break down critical thinking. And he gives this example of a guy walking down the street. It's a nice day out. But he sees dark clouds in the distance. He hears some rumbles of thunder. He feels a uh, chill breeze and thinks, oh, maybe maybe it's going to rain soon. And that's John Dewey's, this progressive education theorist, probably the most important influential one. He says, well, this guy is critical thinking. He's doubting. He's looking for new information. He's coming to conclusions. And I thought, well, if that's all critical thinking is, that's pretty simple and basic. Like my dog thinks critically. She might hear a scary noise outside, runs to the stoop, looks around and thinks, okay, do I need to go inside? Because there's a big scary out there. Or can I go back and keep chasing the bunnies in the backyard? Like it, it seems pretty natural, almost evolutionarily ingrained in us. And then I read Edie Hirsch and he um, blew my mind, completely flipped how I think about teaching and education and everything. He broke down and completely obliterates this idea of abstract academic skills, like critical thinking Mm -hmm. shows that a lot of these things that we think about as skills, critical thinking, finding the main idea, um, making inferences, analyzing metaphors are all dependent upon Mm -hmm. content knowledge and facts. Yes. And that, that knowledge base that really came through from your book, the importance of creating that base of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And could you talk about that? Um, Because that is, it's quite different from what a lot of kids are getting, you know, with this student centered approach that you mentioned where they kind of decide what they take in and how they go about things. And really um, they're missing out on getting that base of knowledge that helps them actually be more effective critical thinkers later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an example I use in my book, actually, I was writing this kind of in the middle of the impeachment process for Donald Trump. So I use that as an example. I don't take a side on it. I just say, let's say, let's assume kind of this progressive approach, this critical theory approach where we're going to analyze and think critically about modern politics. If I sit my students down and ask them to think critically about the impeachment process, we there's there's no skill that's going to help them there. I don't care. I don't care if they've learned all of the logical fallacies, if they can break down a syllogism, but if they don't know, you know, 
um, what, oh my gosh, high crimes and misdemeanors means. Mm -hmm. If they haven't read a Federalist paper or two that talks about the original intent of the impeachment process, if they don't know the role of the executive branch, haven't read the Constitution, um, if they don't know what actually happened, the the the, the crime in basic question, facts. the basic facts of the case, if they haven't read both sides, they can't think critically about that. So if I were to actually design a project about this for kids, I would give them a bunch of historical knowledge. I would read some primary texts. I would look at impeachment processes from the past, uh, read some articles from both sides, and only then would I have them try to think critically, I'm putting up air mm -hmm. quotes, think critically about this um, modern event or analyzing literature. I give an example, Romeo and Juliet. They don't know anything about Shakespearean history. They don't know how many books have they read that give a robust understanding of love. So I could ask them to think critically about love in Romeo and Juliet or I could give them reading from Christian scripture. I could give them a modern reading on the a scientific analysis of like the hormones in your brain. We read a uh, an explanation of different Greek words for love. I give them all of this factual knowledge that then when I ask them to write an essay about it, their analysis is brilliant because I've given them factual knowledge. And we could sit there and practice critical thinking skills or finding the main idea all day long and that's not going to help them. But if I give them this factual knowledge, well, there are these Greek words for love, eros, agape, storge, philia. Here's what they mean, family love, um, romantic love, brotherly love. Well, now they have this framework, this factual knowledge, historical knowledge with which to analyze the present um, that sitting around and practicing skills is going to do nothing comparatively. Do you talk to your students about this? Do you try to instill in them the, this importance of knowledge? Because obviously it's something very different than they've gotten probably in other classrooms. And if so, do they appreciate that? I think it comes up. Uh, I had one student, it's kind of sad, come up to me a few years ago and tell me, Mr. Buck, I like this new way that you're teaching. Because she had only gotten the progressive approach for years and then comes in and experiences, again, what you and I are familiar with what we consider a traditional approach to the classroom is suddenly new and fancy to them. The idea that we're all going to read a book together and I'm going to give them, you know, we get, we, we paraphrase the declaration of independence while we're reading, um, forget what unit that's in, but this mm -hmm. idea that we're going to read old books and struggle through difficult language is new to a lot of these kids. So yes, I have to explain, here's why I'm doing it. Here's what I hope you gain from it. Here's why, you know, you, as a teacher, kids are always asking, well, why are we learning this? Why are we learning this? And I do try to justify upfront, here's why we're learning this. Sometimes a very practical, I don't want you to send an email when you're an adult and you embarrass yourself because your grammar is terrible. And also, um, you know, here's the purpose of learning history of reading great books so yeah, I, I I talk it through, maybe not in this exact um, nerdy pedagogical language, but I do mm -hmm. justify to my students why we're learning X, Y, or Z. And an important differentiation, a kid asking, why are we learning this is not saying, him saying, I need to be the, you know, arbiter of my education. I mean, it's a, it's a, a question of curiosity and it, you know, you get over that hump and then, then you teach them. Or, or, or do they, or do these very 
progressive indoctrinated kids throw back and say, why are we reading another dead white male? Well, probably after time, it gets to that point, um, you know, that that if they have been trained to ask those questions, my guess is the more that they're used to doing that, then that's when you end up getting kind of more rebellious kids as you go through the school system and they probably do question more. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of the administrators that question more. Again, I, I, I brought this up very in, in the beginning. You'll, you'll have a crazy behavior problem and the administrator will bring you in and rather than taking the kid's side, they'll say, well, what did you do to cause this? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. this, this kid is justified in this action, uh, and you need to change, not the child. Thankfully, I've had a lot of parents at an, it was at an affluent school, but this was a bit, it, I'd taught in public schools and I taught in urban schools and I went to an affluent school for a few years. And some of the things I heard parents say really were jarring to me because I was so used to not hearing it or hearing the opposite. I, I heard a lot of parents and even teachers say, this wasn't about me. We had a teacher that wasn't very good. Uh, and her room was chaotic, but I overheard parents talking about it to their kids. And some of the teachers were parents too, saying, we don't care if you like this teacher, you are going to learn from this teacher. We don't care if she's boring, you're going to behave in that classroom. You and have a lot of parents like that, or is that fairly <clears throat> rare? That was, I, that was jarring to me because I was so unaccustomed to hearing that. <laughs> Well, we're working on that. So we're and, trying to encourage more of them. Yeah. And then uh, one other comment to make about the dead white male thing. I do think that's a straw man of a classical education. I mean, I read Frederick Douglass with my kids. We ha I have a unit on the Harlem Renaissance. We just read A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. This idea that great literature is only the purview of dead white males is a racist idea that progressives are pushing, not classical educators, not conservatives, not people, excuse me, on the center left that are questioning these woke orthodoxies. That's an idea that the woke is pushing and shows that a lot of these woke ideas and <laughs> advocates are the racist ones, not the people who support classical education. I, look, right. Let me ask you this. We, I think I think any any sane person, educated person, agrees that there is great literature from a broad range of types of authors, whatever I, you know, however you want to identify them. You know, what the woke or the progressives are saying is a child, this goes back to the child-centered education. A child needs to see themselves or their identity in what they're doing in school or in what they're reading. Um, do you agree with that? Not I mean, do you agree with that, you know, sometimes or is great literature, great literature, because you're learning more broader lessons about human nature? I mean, if we only want them to see themselves, we might as well just ask them to sit in chairs and look in a mirror yeah. all the time. Uh, I think our job as educators is to expand our kids' minds outside of what they experience, to expose them to something that's outside of their insular interests. And a lot of kids, if you do that, find it really interesting. You know what's boring? My hometown is boring. Mm -hmm. The history of Milwaukee, to me, is boring. I know Milwaukee. You know what's interesting? Knights, stars, um, sword fights in Verona, uh, a slave running away from a plantation. Like, these are fascinating stories. Mm -hmm. And they're fascinating precisely because they're not my life. 
And a good teacher is going to make them relevant to a kid. It's not yeah. that the child should be directing the content. It's, a, it's that the teacher should direct the content and then help the kid make a connection to it so that it becomes alive and interesting. Yeah. Um, could not I'm agree more. <laughs> I'm reading Of Mice and Men right now with my students and I'm in an urban school. So every single one of my kids is a black kid and they are connecting with it a ton, even though it's a story of white migrant farm workers during the great depression because there's a character the short little guy that always wants to pick fights we all know in the classroom who that kid is we like him we love him but that's a character type that is consistent across racial demographics that is consistent across socioeconomic demographics there's a character who um i guess it's actually the same character curly who thinks He's in a place of authority and demands authority from everybody, but no one respects him. There's another guy who doesn't demand authority from everybody, but everybody respects him. There's the big, tall, dumb guy that's just super friendly. Like these are character types that anyone can relate to. And it's just, it would be such a disservice to my students if I told them, well, you can't connect to these people because they're white. That is so messed up. We'll be back with more Take Back Our Schools right after this. It's the Ricochet Podcast. Today we talk to Harmeet Dillon about the RNC and how to get the party back on track. Why are you running for chair, chair of the RNC? The reason that I ran for this position is we are losing elections and we've lost repeatedly over the last six years and our leadership seems not to be geared to winning in 2024. In fact, the Republican National Committee uh, seems to really right now serve mainly the interests of political consultants who get paid whether you win or you lose elections. Ricochet. Join the conversation. I wanted to ask about some of the research that supports a more traditional approach, or at least says that the progressive approach is not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, um, there's a lot of, I mean, are we getting into instruction? Are we getting into discipline? Are we getting into curriculum? Uh, I guess I could touch briefly on all of them. If we're getting into discipline, there have been a number of schools over the past decade and districts and cities that have tried to get rid of, you know, suspensions, expulsions, detentions, um, basically punitive discipline for low-level behavior. And in each case, uh, academics plummet, mathematic and literacy achievement plummet, especially among disadvantaged kids. So we're, yes. we're harming disadvantaged kids the most. Um, affluent children are going to get tutors. They're going to grow up in a literacy-rich household. So they're not going to be as affected by these things. But yeah, in each case, truancy goes up. Um, criminality and severe behavior increases in Philadelphia and California. I'm drawing, I don't have them all off the top of my head right now. I just wrote a big piece in National Affairs. If you want to go read um, more in depth than that. Then I have a article in defense of suspensions at the Fordham Institute that has all the links you can click on in there too. If we're talking about instruction, there are a few fascinating studies, um, you know, randomized controlled styles, looking into mathematics instruction, 
and science instruction where kids are. So in one of them, let's talk about the math one first. Kids were given either a discovery-based instruction where the teacher kind of drew on ideas from the kids to try and solve the math problem on the board. And the idea is, well, the kids are doing the thinking then. The problem is the kids are experiencing right and wrong answers, and it all gets jumbled up together, and they don't learn it as well, versus in the explicit instruction where the teacher takes 15 minutes to say, here is how you do it. I'm going to do a few problems for you. You're going to sit there. You're going to take notes. You're going to watch. And then you're going to practice some on your own. Way more effective. Way more kids after that um, showed mastery of this basic mathematical concept. Um, it was something simple. It was, you know, with elementary school kids, like adding multiple number, numbers in a row. Or there was a science one where they're talking about independent variables in uh, experiments. And they got this contraption that a ball rolling down a ramp and they could change the height of the ramp. They could change the weight of the ball. They could change the texture of the ramp. And in one group, kids just kind of played around with it and experimented with it on their own. In another one, the teacher had it up front and ran different experiments and changed different variables for the kids. And in the end, the group that had the teacher standing up front giving some direction instruction, giving a 15-minute lecture before turning the kids loose to practice and run some problems on their own. That group that was a more traditionalist approach to the classroom with some direct instruction, way more kids mastered the concept and showed master the concept in the end of it. Edie Hirsch just gets into a lot of this uh, when kids are given sequence curriculum, the schools that use sequence curriculum, uh, classical schools, no excuse, charter schools, they far out outperform the other ones. And there are a lot of uh, studies into Lucy Calkins in particular, the, the progressive approach to uh, literature classroom where kids are. Um, like the context choosing, clues yeah, and the yeah, choos choosing their own phonics. books. Yeah, those just don't work. Yeah, it seems like there uh, there is a awakening about that. I'm seeing more and more of a return to phonics, and especially which is great because of the numbers that we're seeing with the literacy rates. I mean, here here in Illinois, um, some people have done some reporting. I mean, it's as low as two percent, two, mm -hmm. just abominable. Or what? Yeah. At grade level, or just reading at grade level? Yeah, they test like fourth and eighth grade amongst yeah. different and it, and it it's it's and it varies by by demographic, racial demographic, right. um, and it's really it's just it's such a recipe for disaster for society um, at large, but just a tragedy for these kids. If you can't read, how are you going to function? Right. It's mm -hmm. the most disempowering feeling in the world. Yeah, and it, that comes back to this whole progressive idea that well, if we just give students books and set them loose, they'll kind of learn to read by osmosis. And that's not right. how it works. They need to be taught that letters make sounds, they group together to make words, and then they form sentences and teach that in a sequenced way. So they're not learning uh, their vowels two or three years in a row, but they cover their vowels these months, they get into the consonants these months, blending here. Um, and that requires a little top-down management from mm -hmm. teachers. And also in you point this out, it's actually the least fair to the kids um, when a teacher doesn't take the lead role because the kids who get the additional instruction at home, the kids who, you know, whose parents read to them, talk at the dinner table, they're in an advantage. They, they mm -hmm. just know more. 
And so somehow, you know, then, so the kid that doesn't have that is going to be even further left behind um, Mm -hmm. with that progressive approach. Yeah. And that's where there's this big movement on the center left too, that's pushing against a lot of the progressive education and woke ideas because they see this isn't serving the most disadvantage. Um, And that, that doesn't need to be even just a center left thing. Like I am a conservative and I see that I work in an urban education and like, we are screwing these poor kids over. And we're repeating the cycle of poverty because we're so bought. So I shouldn't say we, because so many people in education are bought into these vacuous, empty, idealistic, but idiotic ideas. Mm -hmm. Road to hell is paved with good intentions. Can I, I want to follow up on that. I was going to ask something else, but, but, but on that note, uh, on, on, let's say that the issue of education has become part of this broader culture war and it has gotten obviously very politicized and, how do we get, let's say, the center left? You know, not that many people are woke. I mean, I think it's a it's a relatively small percentage of of Americans and of parents. It may be nearly one hundred percent of, uh, you know, ed school teachers and instructors and, and PhDs and and you know and trainers and et cetera. H- how do we depoliticize education, or, or if we can depoliticize education, so we can really make progress. I mean, we see, we see somewhat of a renaissance in classical education mm-hmm. um, or you know, which is effectively traditional education, but that is immediately identified as a conservative thing. Many of them are, are, are religious or Christian schools. Do you have any thoughts on how we can depoliticize education, which can actually make progress? Uh, I don't know that I want to depoliticize education. It's been politicized okay. and, and it always has been, you know, but can we Not, get that center left without, I guess that's my question. Can we get that center left, which we need, or even the center without uh-huh. depoliticizing it? Yeah. Um, school board races, seven out of eight of them historically have been won by the union backed candidate. Who's generally a rabid progressive. It only becomes political. It only becomes political. I'm putting up quotes, air quotes in the news and in the media. When conservatives start being competitive in these races, it's been political. Now just the conservatives and the center left and everyone who's pushing against this wokeness are making strides. And now all of a sudden, oh my gosh, our schools are so politicized. It's like, no, they always have been. We're just like realizing it. <laughs> realizing it and fighting back a little bit. Public education is going to be political. When I see parents at school board meetings, I'm sitting there going, ooh, rah, rah, this is the way it should be. These are publicly managed. So long as all of our public dollars are going to fund these institutions, um, man, these debates go back to Plato's Republic, where one of the biggest questions in that book is, what should we teach our children? This is an incredibly controversial topic, and we're never going to see eye to eye over it. It's just for a long, long time, parents trusted schools to do what was right, and conservatives just kind of didn't even try, because like, it's not worth it, we're not going to win. Um but this is a really important question. What should we teach our kids? And we should be arguing over it. And we should be hashing these ideas out in public. It doesn't need to be in the classroom, but I don't mind the debates around public education flaring up. Like I would, I want to have these debates. I don't want to shove them down. I don't want one side to steamroll the other one. There are policies that can kind of cool it down a bit. I don't think school choice is a panacea. But right now in the public school I was in, the woman across the hall from me was all bought into 
student choice, progressive education. And I was all bought into classical education, traditional teachers, the authority in the room, all that kind of stuff. Why were we in the same building teaching off of the same curriculum when there were four high schools in this district? Why not have four different high schools and kids and families can choose the one and teachers too then can choose the one that fits their own um, ideas. Values. Right. Yeah, their own values. Thank you. Right. We can have a classical school. We could have a vocational school. We could have a progressive education school and a fourth one. Who knows? Some, mm-hmm. some, something else that we hadn't thought of before. Sounds like kind of a, a version of peaceful pluralism in education. <laughs> can I ask? I want. I got one more. I, I lied about one last question. We had. Um, I asked the same. We had Betsy DeVos on a while ago, and I asked her this exact same question because she's, you know, her life's mission has been educational choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so ha- why, why, to your point, why don't we have, you know, a, a, some high school in a district, another high school with different values? The downside of that, and, and especially from sort of the, the conservative viewpoint, is that do we need some common and some would say even patriotic education? Um, and if you separate schools to that extent, do we lose? And, and a lot of the original ideas of education, going back to Thomas Jefferson, was that, you know, for democracy, you do need some commonality. and you know, many would say some patriotic aspect of education. Um, So, you know, what's your thought on that? If we do go that direction of having very different schools and having parents be able to choose those very different schools. I think um, educational choice needn't mean educational libertinism where anything goes, we can still have some boundaries, um, you know, a basic curriculum, maybe that they need to cover until um, grade eight or grade five. And then after that, there's more choice. You know, we have common schools up until this grade. And then the latter half, we get more choice because that's where the more and more we specialize in topics, um, then a little more choice over what kids learn um, seems appropriate. We could have I mean, everyone, standardized tests, maybe we don't use them well, but like there's a time and a place for them. And maybe kids get to eighth grade and if they test out, then they get choice. They can go to these specialty high schools. Um, We can have boundaries around it still and still some um, sequence control. It's just, it's all a matter of where do we put the choice? Where do we put the control? You know, we're going to have authority. We're going to have choice. We're going to have some common curriculum. It's it's a matter of who's making the decisions. And I have like a whole chapter dedicated this in this book. You know, I want educational choice. Ideally, at the high school level, kids are choosing their high school. My colleague that I talked about wants complete choice in the classroom. They want the kids controlling it. Our families making the choice? Are teachers making the choice? Are kids making the choice? Are the Is the government making the choice? Then at the local, state, federal level, um, just talking about educational choice kind of collapses this discussion down right. just into one thing. Mm-hmm. We're going to have complete freedom at every grade level and families are the only one making that choice. Not exactly how we need to structure it. We might mm-hmm. have no choice up until eighth grade and then kids who test out get to choose their high school. Mm-hmm. You know, I, what, what does that framework look like um, can still keep some of that original founding idea that we should, we need some common culture, we need some common ideas. There is a little bit of a indoctrinating 
that's going to happen in any school. And having some pro-America values isn't a terrible thing. Agreed. Uh, That whole notion of having a common base of knowledge uh, that it could include and should include some notion of an appreciation of the country that you are living in. Um, and and the unique the unique place it has in the world um, mm-hmm. sounds sounds pretty healthy to me. Well, we are very glad that you are a voice in this debate. And where can people find you on Twitter and the internet, etc.? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Mr. Daniel Buck. Uh, please don't call me that. Daniel Buck just was already taken, so I put a Mister in there. <laughs> um, my book is What Is Wrong with Our Schools. You can find it on Amazon, Target, uh, Barnes and Noble. I write for the Fordham Institutes and I write a lot for National Review too. I have no formal relationship with them, but I'm just kind of mm-hmm. one of their education guys that I write for them once, twice, three times a month, depending on how time allows. Great. And you had a great Wall Street Journal op-ed in the summer, I recall too, kind of recalling mm-hmm. your your grad school experience. So people can look that up as well. Well, I'll, Daniel Buck, thank you for joining us. Um, and thanks for being an example of what we'd like to see more of in the classroom. Uh, and also your willingness to shine a light on the problems that we see in our school system. Uh, We wish you well, uh, success with the book, and we will hope to have you back again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Happy to come back. Well, another, I want to say lone wolf teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, saying the right things and brave, obviously mm-hmm. brave. And there's, I mean, there's more of them out there, but, but obviously very, very few of them public. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, why so, it, f- why so few? I mean, is it really, is it, is it that they, well, I suppose a lot of people are worried about losing their jobs, losing pensions. When you talk about public school teachers, I mean, I think it's all the more brave when it is in this environment. Um, he, yeah, I, I, I I just hope that he has friends, you know. <laughs> well, but I think I think you know he alluded to a little bit with with parents and and the previous school he was at, which where parents were involved, and it's something you know we talk about a lot is parents have to be involved in in their kids and and in choosing schools and 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 setting the right values. Um, but this, you know, this we've had a number of episodes on sort of the return to traditional education or classical education. Uh, I'm hopeful for what he said when he said that the center left is waking up to the fact that maybe all these progressive ideas in education aren't so good. And maybe what he said is right, that the restorative justice aspect and the, you know, and and the, the, the disorder in these classrooms um, will be the wake up call. I don't know, you know, in, in a lot of ways it is relevant to, you know, the crime issue more broadly when you, you know, mugged by reality, when uh, you know, when, when something happens to you or your family or, and you see it, and you start to question, you know, all of the ideas. I'm not sure we're there yet, but maybe that is the catalyst for reforming education. I hope so. I mean, this is not a statistically valid sample, but the teachers I know, teachers in my family, um, yeah. absolutely fall in that category. Um, that's probably what I hear about uh, most. And so, I behavior think in the classroom. You're talking about. The behavior in the yeah. classroom. You know, it's not fair to the kids. Um, it's not fair to the other kids. And you know, if a teacher is not keeping order in a classroom another person is, and it's going to be kind of the class bully, or it's going to be somebody. And so um, in fairness to the other kids that are actually there to learn, uh, I think it's, it's, it needs to be teachers and, you know, it's well, not you got to be able to some... get that kid out of the classroom. Yeah. I mean, and the have one the administration back kid... at you and doing it, which is a, which is yeah, a problem. Correct. I hear that. I hear that yes. as well. If you can't, if you can't get a kid out, if you can't suspend a kid or whatever you have to do, everybody suffers. And they then, do. and then they don't learn. 
Mm -hmm. So hopefully Um, we'll see a backlash on this. Well, I don't know. I hope so. And I just, I really appreciated the little mini lesson he gave us um, in, in explaining how he would teach a subject and all of the other, you know, all the, all the, you know, little bits of knowledge that give context to enable a kid to really, you know, understand um, a concept. I just thought was wonderful. And I would love to see more, more of that. Um, You know, I think it does happen. It, it, it is, it's like, how do we find, how do we find the teachers like him and replicate what they're doing? Um, Because there are others that are doing it that are not, you know, speaking. Not every school, not every school, not every teacher is going to do what he's done, which is on his own read, you know, Edie Hirsch and eat and read John Dewey and, and, you know, be able to reject these things and read, you know, a lot more stuff that he talks about in his book. We need to have an Edie Hirsch episode. Well, we do. But, but my point is if we don't, if the ed schools don't start changing, uh, we're not changing the teachers. And if we don't change the teachers, we're not changing education. You can't expect every teacher to go out on their own Mm -hmm. and do the research and do the work, Uh, especially when they're tired in the classroom because of the behavior issues. (laughs) You know, right. the last thing they probably want to do and come home and, 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 you know, read more about education. So we've got to fix the ed schools uh, and that's Absolutely. not an easy task. No. And it sounds like, um, you know, that it's gotten worse, not better recently. So yes, yes not an easy ta- so. task at all. Well, he is one of the good guys. So glad we were able to yeah. hear from, from Daniel Buck and, uh, you know, thanks for listening. Um, I think we, if you enjoyed today's show, please share it, give us a positive review and, for sure, join us again. And on behalf of my co-host, Andrew Gutman, this is Beth Feely, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.